in different scenarios, but it is one story, God's story, and it is the greatest story ever told. In fact, every story that has ever been told, every story that comes out of, the, out of well, Hollywood or, or, or the publishing house, really is just a lesser version of God's story. So let me just try and give you a, a, a bigger picture here um, of, of this. Um, can we move this one, please? There we go, okay? The story of the Bible. In Genesis, we start with all of creation, okay? So we have this widest possible starting point. All of the cosmos, all of the universe is created. And through the Old Testament, it narrows and narrows and narrows to one person. We start from the width of creation right into one person. And then Matthew, New Testament starts with the baby born in Bethlehem. And, and, it, and it focuses on the cross. And then from the New Testament, it explodes out from that one person to the whole cosmos again in Revelation, where, where there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And it explodes out through the work of the church. Okay, so you've got this kind of hourglass kind of shape to, to the story of the Bible. All of creation points to one man, Jesus Christ. And from Jesus Christ out into the very ends of the earth to the new creation. But uh, maybe if, you, if you're if you trying to explain the Bible to maybe some younger ones or, or, or kids, grandkids, or whatever it happens to be, always a good one to, be, uh, to do is the fact that the Bible is like the greatest story ever told. Think of any movie that you've seen, okay? Um, it generally has the same pattern to it. It starts all nice and rustic and beautiful, and you think, oh, this is just a lovely, oh, how serene. How wonderful, they're drinking frappuccinos or cappuccinos or some sort of Italian coffee. Or, you know, the, the guy kisses his wife off as he goes off to work. Or maybe there's a wee bit of tension, but it's fine because they'll work it out later on. And then, kaboom, all right? Something terrible happens. The bad guys arrive. Something terrible has happened that shakes the very foundations of this idealistic world that they're living in. And then all these bad guys appear, whether it is an arch villain, a bank robber, terrorists, Voldemort, or Thanos, or whatever it happens to be, whatever it is, whatever movie franchise you want to look at, the bad guy arrives, and it looks like they're going to win. It looks like all hope is lost. It looks like any chance of rescue is gone. And then usually from an unlikely source, Someone who we didn't expect to be the hero emerges. Whether it is a cop who plays by his own rules, or a fat retired a sort of mall cop, or a geeky wizard, or a man in an iron suit, whatever it happens to be, out of somewhere, this hero emerges. And, uh, and one person saves the day. Just like that. And, and the reality of it is that there is this underlining idea no matter how what stage you are at the movie keep hoping keep hoping because someone is going to come and rescue us there's going to be someone who's going to come in and save the day and then of course they do that's pretty much the theme of any movie now okay maybe it varies from genre to genre but normally that's what happens it looks good there's an antagonist looks like they're going to get away with their scheme and then they're undermined by an unlikely hero. And yet the greatest ever story is the Bible story. We start with Eden. Perfect world. 
no sin. People have this wonderful relationship with God, then kaboom, the fall, sin arrives. Uh, and there seems to be this spiral and spiral and spiral. And it looks like there's no way. How on earth can we ever get out of this mess? Anytime it looks like we seem to get close to God, we mess it up again. And it seems that we keep making these same mistakes over and over again. And there's this cycle and this cycle of sinning and then repenting and then sinning and then repenting and then sinning. And it looks like sin is going to win. And then in the most unlikeliest of places, Little Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth, and nothing good could ever come out of Nazareth, emerges a redeemer. And even on the cross, it looked to human eyes that it was over. All hope was lost, all hope was gone, and yet we know that in that moment, the redeemer triumphed and saved the day. The story of the Bible, the greatest story ever told, they're still trying to tell the story. They're trying to take Jesus out of it. But it's still the greatest story ever told. The greatest, the story that, that appeals to moviegoers, the story that appeals to audiences, still the story of the Bible. It just tells me that there's something in us that is drawn to this kind of a story. The story of the Bible, the story of the gospel, which I think is just incredible. Which brings us then to Ruth because time and time again we're going to see how this is just not a story that stands alone but this story is part of the bigger story it is part of God's bigger picture and the fact that it sits between the book of Judges and first and second Samuel the, these two books that deals with the rise and fall of nations and kings and wars and conflicts and it's dealing with global international and national crises it's a wee reminder that the story of God is still a personal story it's about people it's about people the people are really what God is interested in more so than nation states and political boundaries. And it's a little reminder from the Bible that even though it looks like the bad guys are winning and it looks like there is no hope, the book of Ruth is a reminder that there's a redeemer coming, that there's someone who's going to rescue, there's someone who's coming who's going to save, that Jesus is on his way. Now, that's just one reason why I love the book of Ruth. And I know every time I start a sermon series on a book, I always start by saying, I love this book. But I really do love this book. And it's like a little oasis in the cesspit of trouble and sin and sad stories. And it's more than just a love story. I know it's often framed like that as a love story. But it's also a story of a family. It's a story of a family, and it's a family story. And right at the start, we meet a family that isn't Ruth's, and it's on the move. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrath, um, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, I said in my opening prayer that there, is, there has been an election and a game. 
I do not believe that politics and the pulpit should mix at all. But what I would say is, I don't care what way you voted. I don't care if your guy won or not. Um, just pray for them. We're commanded in Scripture to pray for those in authority over us. So you pray for them. Whether you like them or not, you pray for them. And pray that God would save them and use them for the sake of our country. But the election came, and we had the right to make a choice. Some of you, hopefully, most exercised that right. But some of you didn't. And that's your right. You made a choice, even in doing that. And so whether you are engaged politically or not, the freedom to choose, the democracy that we have is one of the most precious things that we have. There are many people in this world, many countries that don't have that kind of freedom. They don't have the right to choose their own leaders. And yet what I want you to see in this message this morning is that there are choices that need to be made and have been made in this starting chapter of Ruth. And there is one that I want you to make this morning before you leave. And that's very simply, are you going to choose human wisdom or godly obedience? Human wisdom or godly obedience or, excuse me, maybe put it another way, are you going to choose a livelihood or a godly life? This family that we meet, it starts by making a bad choice. They start by leaving Bethlehem. It continues in more bad choices by Naomi staying there, furthered by her choice to marry her sons to ungodly, un non-believing women. And it finishes the chapter with a good choice of going back home. It's a story of love, redemption, and second chances. And so it is going to be a wee bit sort of harder this morning because it is dealing with the bad choices that then allows us to talk about redemption, that allows us to talk about the second chances, that allows us to talk about the love. Okay, so we'll, we'll get through this this morning, I promise, and then it gets better. It gets more hopeful. But we have to start with the, the bad choices so that we can then talk about getting the second chances. First one tells us that that we are in the days when the judges ruled. There's a famine in the land, which tells us it's a dark time. The book of Judges, if you've ever read it, is a difficult book. It is a dark and violent book. It's a rough read. Um, there is this cycle of sin where God uh, punishes them, they repent, and then they kind of forget, and then they start sinning again. This kind of cycle, this routine. There is surrounded by people who are bandits and pillaging and killing and destroying. You've got the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Midianites, the Moabites, the Malachites, the Termites. Sorry, that's not the real one at the end there. But they, they surround the people of Israel and God used them to keep his people honest. And they're so consistently quick to fall back into rebellion when things were easy. I, I can look after myself. No, things are fine now. I can, I can take over now. I can take care of things. I want to have a wee bit more freedom. I want to have a wee bit more say. I want to have a wee bit more fun. And as God was forgotten and the enemies come, it was that it might bring them back to repentance and remind them of their dependency on God. So, so Judges is a dark book because that's the pattern that it's establishing. 
but it's encouraging also because it's nice to know that God is so good and patient and willing to forgive and to forgive and to forgive and to forgive and to forgive time and time and time. Again, times have not changed. We fall into the same bad patterns, don't we? And how good to know that God is so patient and long-suffering with us that he is always trying to bring us to a place of repentance. Before the time of Judges, in Joshua and Moses, there was great prosperity. Coming out of the occupation of the land of milk and honey, they had been in Egypt, slaves for hundreds of years. They had walked the wilderness for, for many, many generations. And now they come into a land flowing with milk and honey, and yet it's in their prosperity then, as the judges rule, that they stopped looking to and depending on God, and they got comfortable. And we find that prosperity is more dangerous to our spiritual walk than trials because we start to coast and we leave God behind, and yet He is so patient with us. But also, it's why He brings us adversity. He loves us enough to bring us back to that place, out of our comfort, and to that place of dependency on Him. It's why Amos 6 starts with the phrase, Woe to them who are at ease in Zion. Why? Why? What's so wrong with being comfortable? What's so wrong with having a good life? Well, think about it. You give a child everything that they want when they want. What happens? They become spoiled brats. And our country has become very good at creating spoiled brats. Because they expect, they demand, and they show very little appreciation. They show very little thanks or love for those who have provided and for those who have gave. And so the Bible says, woe to them who are at ease when they can have what they want, when they want, just like that. Because it erodes their character. And that's why David wrote in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I was afflicted, whenever I had it easy, whenever I had it good, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now... Now, keep your word. Deuteronomy is good for, for working through this. Deuteronomy, it says, You will eat and be full, and you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. It's a time of prosperity. You have what you need. You have more than what you need. You have more what you want. And then it says, but take care. Take care in your blessing. Take care in your abundance, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. See, God knew what could happen. And by the way, that whole chapter, Deuteronomy 8, is really, really good at, at teaching thankfulness and appreciation. Teach it, learn it, and show it to your kids because it's just a really good um, chapter because God knows the dangers of getting everything that you want. And then Judges shows us, if you put the last verse of Judges and then you just put it side by side by the book of Ruth, it shows us what's happening. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's in those days that the book of Ruth is being set. No king means everyone thinks that they're their own king. I'm the boss of my life. I'm in charge. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't care what you say. I'm doing it my way. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And yet the truth is that the more you do as you please, the less you are pleased by what you do. It tends to be the way. The more you do as you please, the less you are pleased with what you do. It seems to be a basic rule that God has built into his creation. Let, let me take another. Uh, ten commandments, okay? 
we would all agree that Ten Commandments are important, right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of standard. Even if you're not a Christian, you'll say, oh, yeah, Ten Commandments, yeah, I'll sign up to that. Because, you know, we would agree, okay, it's um, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Yeah, of, of course we're going to be on board with that. We're, we're moral people. So what about then keeping the Sabbath day holy? Is that just as important to you? Say, well, you know, what about honoring your mother and father? Looking at the younger ones. Is it just as important to you? Says, oh, well, I mean, I mean, it's not just. A, uh, so, but hold on, are, are we so? So now we're saying some ten some of the ten commandments are more serious than the others. We should start taking some more and prioritize them over some of the other ones. And there will be, but ah, well, if you do the other six or seven, you'll be fine. Surely that's exactly what we're doing because then we're starting to pick and choose and we're doing what is right in our own eyes. I've decided that that's not just so important. I've decided that I don't have to keep that rule if I'm keeping these rules. And so we do what's right in our own eyes even though we say, hey, but God is my king. Job asked the question in Job 9, who, who, can, who has hardened his heart against him, God, and still prospered? he knows the answer and deep down we know the answer nobody can truly prosper by leaving God out of the picture but what I'm trying to do is paint you a picture that the book of Ruth is set in a time that is very similar to our own where the majority don't care about God they're not that interested in God would rather do their own thing there are plenty of causes to fight there's plenty of crusades for them to go on there's plenty of things to happen but ultimately they'd rather just get on with it and leave God at the edges Kind of sounds like 2019 Northern Ireland, doesn't it? And so when we get to Ruth 1 verse 1 and we see that we are in part of a cycle where God is judging, the famine is punishment for their sin. It's that part of the sin cycle where they've come away from God, they've, they've done what's right in their own eyes. God is punishing them with this famine to bring them to repentance. Now, there's enough people here with um, farming knowledge. You no, know, well, look, Jeff, hold on. Plenty of reasons why a famine could be caused. I mean, there's drought, there's wind, there's hail, there's sabotage. I mean, war causes famine as well. But we know that it's because God has told us in, in Deuteronomy 11, back in Genesis even, we looked at Abraham and Joseph and says, look, we're going to go to a land that's not going to be like Egypt. It's going to be completely different how you farm. Listen to Deuteronomy 11. Oh, it's quite small, but it says, for the land that you're entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you've come, where you've sown your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I have commanded you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock. And you shall eat and be full. It's a picture of blessing. But then here's this phrase again. Take care, lest. Chapter 8 says, take care, lest you forget your God. And here it says, take care, lest your heart be deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. God said, you honor me, 
I'll honor you with good harvests. You dishonor me, I'll give you bad harvests. It was as simple as that. He repeats this again in Deuteronomy 28. God has no problem taking responsibility for the natural disasters in Israel. And by the way, he's got no problem taking responsibility for anywhere else either. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But let's, let's move on because this is hard in Israel. The family look up and they look across and they see Moab from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is beautiful. It's a beautiful town. Its name means house of bread, but there's a famine in the house of bread. And yet from Bethlehem, you can go and you can look and across and you can see Moab. Um, Bethlehem is about two and a half thousand feet above sea level. And then as you look out across the Dead Sea, uh, the Dead Sea is a couple of thousand feet below sea, sea level. And so you're quite high up across, so you can see right across. Now, there's the map, Bethlehem to Moab. So you're just looking across the Dead Sea. And what happens is it's only a walk of maybe 30, 40 miles, depending on what precise route you take. And he looks around, and this is what it actually looks like from Bethlehem, okay? So maybe you can't see it. That blue patch there, that's the Dead Sea. These mountain ranges, that's Moab. You can see Moab from Bethlehem. So Elimelech, his family are starving. There's a famine in the land and they are struggling. And he looks around and he sees the mountains and he sees that the grass is literally greener on the other side. It's literally greener on the other side. Well, let's go. And so Moab was all under the curse of God. So they had a decision to make. Are we going to go where God is punishing us and trying to move among us here? Or do we go across to Moab? Where are we going to go? Now, the curse that Moab was under came back in Genesis chapter 19. Lot um, got drunk by his two daughters. They, they basically had an incestuous relationship, and his two daughters had uh, children to, to Lot. Uh, his oldest daughter uh, fell pregnant to him and had a son called Moab, which is where the Moabites come from. The second had a son called Ben-Ami, which is where the Ammonites came from enemies of the people of Israel. They didn't worship the God of Israel. They worshiped a God called Chemosh. Um, and one of the rituals for Chemosh was child sacrifice. They, they were involved in ritualistic human children being sacrificed as worship. And God said, you cannot allow one of these people into the fellowship of Israel for 10 generations. They have no right to be among you. That kind of sin, that kind of darkness, that kind of depravity, if they're okay with that, they are not allowed in here. But Elimelech and Naomi have a choice. The grass is greener on the other side. It's a choice that is made under pressure. Famine is no small thing. We do not know what it is like to be in famine. But maybe some of you know what it's like to have things tight. Maybe there's a few financial decisions you've had to make and say, look, Jeff, the finances are absolutely shocking. Things have gone belly up. Uh, I've been let go or, or whatever's happening and, and I need to do something. And so you take out a second loan or, or, or credit card debt start piling up and, and you start spiraling and spiraling and you go, ah, this choice I made was a terrible choice. Or maybe someone looks in the mirror and thinks, boy, I'm beautiful. But... This is maybe as good as it's going to get. I'm already 22 years old and I'm not with anybody. 
So instead of waiting on the Lord to bring someone your way, you go out and you spend time with the first guy that shows you any interest. Because you made a choice that was based out of fear. It says, well, I'd rather be with somebody than not be with somebody. The grass is greener. I'd rather make that choice. I'd rather make that call because <laughs> I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. And instead of going to God, Elimelech could ha have said, um, Lord, if we um, humble ourselves and pray in repentance, I believe you will heal our land, will restore the years the locusts and famine have taken away. He thinks, I'm going to take matters into my own hand instead. You know, names mean things, uh, especially in the Bible. Esau, uh, he came out all red and hairy. And so his dad looked at him and says, let's call him Harry. Esau is the combination of the words red and hairy. So when you say, oh, baby Esau, it's little baby redhead. Or hairy red man or whatever you want to call it. Jacob then comes out grabbing the heel. And so he's Jacob, the deceiver, the trickster, the heel grabber. I'm going to trip you up. I'm going to grab your heel. I'm going to cause you to fall. And of course, he lived up to that name. These names have meaning to Elimelech, Eli, meaning God. Malak, it means is king. So Elimelech means God is king. Naomi means pleasant. And uh, um, those are nice names, good names. God is king, pleasant. The sons have, have strange names. Now, Malon means sickly or runt. And Chilean means crybaby. Uh, so imagine these calling those names out in a class register. Sickly. Run, here, miss. Cry, baby, here, miss. Doesn't sound great, sure it doesn't. Now, every parent dreams of having the perfect baby, the perfect child, but a great fear can be that um, their child's a wee bit odd looking. And I'll be honest, every newborn baby I have seen is an ugly baby. Now, I, no, now I, I don't mean like newborn as in, oh, they're a week or two old, all right, no. I mean minutes old and are at the most old. Boy, they're a funny old shape. Boy, they're a funny old color. And I remember seeing my girls being born. Doctor, are they supposed to be blue? Why do they look like one of the cone heads? What's happening? Now, of course it wears off. Of course, things settle down very quickly. It's just all part of the process. It's all part of what's going on. But could you imagine if I decided in those moments that the first thing that I saw about them was going to be the names that stuck, you know? Now, a parent's love can overcome such objective points. But I still wouldn't call my girls blue and pointy. It just really wouldn't work. And yet, sickly and crybaby stuck for Malon and Chilean. Elimelech's name means God is king but he's not acting up to it. He has the right name, but he's got the wrong actions. And these families from the Ephrathes uh, family, it's an elite family. It's a high-landed gentry kind of a thing. Think uh, Downton Abbey. Think, you know, it's that kind of, you know, uh, the House of Windsor or Rutherford or something like that there, you know. Side idea, no, it's a well-known name. It's a well-known family. The, 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 this is Elimelech and Naomi are people with stature in their community. They're people with money, people with influence, and they walk away. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. 
These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orba, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's a lot of hurt in just a few verses, isn't it? That's a lot of hurt crammed into just a few short space of time. Which is why whenever she goes back to Bethlehem, she'll say, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has built their has dealt bitterly with me. I am bitter about how God has done this to me. Now, when they first arrive in Moab, I'm sure it felt good, it felt right. They've got a nice four-bedroom tent and a two-camel garage or whatever it worked back then. They had the money, they integrated into the upper middle class of the community. They joined the golf club or the tennis club or whatever it happened to be, and they just eased right in, and they felt good. And they said, you know, this isn't too bad. Why would God curse a place like this? Okay, yes, I know they don't, you know, they, they believe that stuff. But, you know, when you talk to them, they're nice neighbors. They're nice folks. Why would God curse a place like this? And sure, okay, look, it's grand for those guys back in Bethlehem. If they want to trust God, that's fine. But God gave me a brain, and I'm going to use it. This is the life. And then the hospital calls, the Royal Moab Hospital, and Naomi finds her husband is dead. And here was a man who left the place God had given him because he chose to seek a livelihood and it cost him his life. He, he, found, he found a grave whenever all this time he was looking for a home. Didn't Jesus say something similar in Matthew 10? That, that whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's a family who lived by sight and not by faith who chose to, to make a living over a life that God would have provided for them. And ultimately, what happened was then they chose to go and side with the enemies of God than to stay faithful to God. And in moving to Moab, what happened was, I would rather honor the enemies of God than, and, and dishonor God. I'd rather do that than stay where I am and ride out this famine. I'd rather do that than repent. I'd rather do this than stay and believe that God is going to be faithful. That's a big and tragic choice to make. Remember, every story in Scripture is God's story. They're all threaded together to tell one big story. And God's story, right here at the start of this story, is explained to us why we, deliver, we desperately need a redeemer, why we need a savior. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've done everything um, We've gone to everyone, turn everyone to his own way. And then we go on to read, but the Lord has laid on him, laid on our Redeemer, the iniquity of us all. So a simple question then as we finish. Think of some of the choices that you've made this week. Do they reflect that God is king in your life? Very simple question. If someone looked at the choices that you made, the thing that you put value on and the things that you didn't put value on, does it say, God is king of my life? Did the conversations that you have reflect the kingship of Christ? We've got young couples in the church. When you're alone, is it clear that God is king in your life? 
or for those of us who are not at that stage anymore, do we fall into a pattern of saying, well, I have no interest in changing God. I have no interest in doing anything. This is who I am. This is what I'm like. I, I, I don't do anything other than what this is. All the while your king's calling you. Make the change. Stop doing what you're doing on them. But look, I, this is just my one wee thing that I like doing. God's calling you to change. God's calling you to move away from it and, and further into him. Or have we just settled into this kind of religious life where we do what we feel is best for us? We do what's right in our own eyes. You see, I, I see a spiritual famine in our land. Uh, and I wonder, you know, Northern Ireland used to be the mission breadbasket of, of the world. We send out so many missionaries. We send out and commission so many people. Yeah, it's a famine now. So, so how do we change that? What do we do? We can't just move. Well, we could endure it. By simply enduring it, we could hunker down, brace ourselves. But generally what will happen is that will only make us bitter. If we, if we just try to endure it, we'll, have, we'll end up with a hard heart, a heavy heart, because what will happen is that trial will master us and we will see everything in the world through the lens of this trial, which isn't good. Perhaps we could escape it. Maybe not geographically, but we could certainly be so busy with other things that are unnecessary to try and justify it. Say, look, God, I understand what you're trying to say. I understand what you're trying to do. But, you know, I'm really kind of busy. I've got the grandkids at the minute. Or, or uh, 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 you know, I, I really do enjoy playing my golf or I enjoy going crafting or cycling or driving or whatever it is that you like to spend your time doing. Or I say, well, look, actually, I'm really busy at work. I know I didn't have to take on all those extra clients, but I did take on those extra clients. I'm really busy at the minute. So God, listen, I've got exams. I'm studying. So I understand that you're asking me to do something, God, but it's not a really good time for me. So I'll come back to you at a more convenient time, God. When it's easier for me, I'll come to you. We try to escape what God's calling us to do, which is to live as he is king. So perhaps the best way then is the third option, to enlist the trial. And instead of allowing the trial to master us and mold us and shape us and dictate what we're doing, we master it. And we use it to show the goodness of God. Perhaps the goodness of God and loving us enough to shake us and bring us to our knees in repentance. You know, it is a very dangerous thing if someone is unable to admit that they're in the wrong. It's a very dangerous thing if someone is unable to say before God, I didn't get this right. Forgive me. I, I plowed on my own way. I had my agenda. I wanted to win the argument rather than build the relationship. But I, I, I was more interested in, in winning, being right, hurting them. Be very wary of someone who can't admit that they're in the wrong. And yet it is a goodness of God that sends trials that makes us realize I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. I need to come to God. Ah, God, I am sorry. I am so sorry for trying to do this all by myself. The goodness of God or perhaps the patience of God that allows us to come back again and again and again for the same mistakes, the same sins, the same selfishness, the same cycle. 
the goodness of God, the peace. Maybe it's the love of God for more than just providing a way out, but providing a new way to go. He says, okay, I'm not just going to go my way anymore, but Lord, I'm going to follow you. Thank you for waiting for me. Thank you for offering your hand and taking me by the hand and leading me by the hand in the paths that I need to go in. We use the trials to bring us back to God. All of this to say as we finish. In God's story, the worst thing that God will give you is still better than the best that the world has to offer. The world will make the grass look greener. That's what it did with Moab to Elimelech. Come on over. It's more fun here. There, there, you can make your own decisions. Join us. There's more freedom. There's more expression. It can't compare. And yet the reality is that's true. It can't compare. But in a completely different way, it cannot compare to what God has to offer us. Nothing to when God is king. See, the worst that the believer will ever face is this life. Okay, So yes, there's trials and there's tribulations, but for all the blessings that we have, for all the things that we can enjoy, our, our church family, our, 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 our regular families, our employment, our comforts, the worst that this world has to offer us is what we're experiencing. This life is the worst that we will ever know because after this, it's heaven. It's an upward trajectory for us. And whatever we're going through, we can endure it for the hope that is set before us. But for the world, for those who are refusing to name Christ as king, for those who don't want him to be their Lord over all that they have. This life, this world, with all its trials and tribulations and perks along the way, this is as good as it's going to be. This exact same life that we're experiencing, the life that they have, this is as good as it's going to be. Because after this life, there's judgment. It's a downward trajectory. And so this same life that we're all living, for some it will be the best that they will ever experience. And yet for the believer it will be the worst. How radically different. So what's the choice going to be, folks? Are we going to live as Christ is King? Or are we going to do what's right in our own eyes? Follow the greener grass. If the story finished at verse 5, it would be a very bad story. We'll see tonight that for Orpah, it did finish here, which is sad. But for Naomi and for Ruth in particular, this is only the beginning of what God can do when we choose his life, when we choose his way and his rule in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it 